the National Archives podcast series, Tracing World War I Ancestors, presented by William Spencer. Thank you, David. Um, good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. I'm going to concentrate on First World War Army ancestors, simply because there are vast numbers of records held here at the National Archives relating to First World War service. To give you an idea of the, the wealth of material we have relating to the First World War, there are, right across the three services, 23 series relating to records of service, at least 12 relating to operations, and another 12 relating to medals, just for the First World War alone. So you're looking at 50-plus record series where data relating to individuals who saw service between 1914 and 1918 may be found. And the time available of, uh, of an hour is just not sufficient to cover all 50. So I'm just going to concentrate on the army. Now, some of you may know what today is. Today is the 92nd anniversary of the first day of the Battle of the Somme. And what you see before you is a map, a military headquarters map, the HQ of 4th Army, showing the objectives, the first day objectives for the Battle of the Somme. So the records that I'm going to discuss in many cases fall into this particular battle simply because tens of thousands of men <coughs> took part in the battle and as some of you may be aware, over 20,000 lost their lives on the first day alone. To give you a, an interesting pointer relating to this map, you see you've got all the different markings for all the different regiments and brigades taking part and the objective lines, first objective here, second objective and the forming up point for the third objective. To give you an idea, it says it should arrive here 20 minutes after the start of the battle, so at about 10 to 8 in the morning. You have the German front line here, the British front line here. You can see here, you've got Beaumont-Hamel. So we're meant to be, before Beaumont-Hamel, 20 minutes after we started. We didn't take Beaumont-Hamel until the 13th of November, 1916. So I'm going to talk about three different record types. Records of service, campaign medal records, and operational records. Records of service can be broken down even further into officers, other ranks and nurses and the Women's Auxiliary, Army Auxiliary Corps. So, officers' records of service. There are three key series, WO339, the <coughs> long numbers, arranged in a peculiar way by the War Office. A lot of officers during the First World War were given a specific number, known as a, as a long number, it was a way of identifying that individual and most importantly relates to forms of correspondence. It's not like a service number that any ex-national serviceman or any ex-regulars may understand. It was a particular form of number for the war office to be used in a particular way. Although you can keyword search either by the surname of the individual, the catalogue for WO339, there is actually a method to get the long number, and I will talk about that in a moment. The second key series, WO374, personal files, brackets, alphabetical. As one might imagine, they're actually arranged in alphabetical order. 
But those two series have particular strengths and weaknesses according to the service of the individual. So, for example, officers from the regular army or officers granted temporary commissions in the regular army, you're more likely to find their records of service in WO339. Officers of the territorial force, later the territorial army, or officers commissioned into the territorial force, are more likely to be found in WO374. So if, as you approach these records, if you can gather bits and pieces relating to an individual officer before you approach them, you might find that you're going to go one way or the other. WO338 contains the index of long numbers. It's arranged alphabetically, and it will give you the surname, first name, and initial. It'll give you the initial rank on commission, and it'll give you a further reference. The final element is, of course, the regiment or unit. Now, the big problem with the army being a very slow machine is that the terminology it used in this index relates to infantry regimental identities pre-1882. The army was rearranged a number of occasions in the late 19th and early 20th century. Prior to 1882, normal infantry regiments were known by numerical identities. So, for example, the second foot became the Queen's Royal West Surrey Regiment, which became the Queen's Royal Surrey Regiment, which is now the Princess of Wales Royal Regiment. So the important thing about using WO338 beyond anything else is knowing a little bit about the lineage of the regiment prior to 1882, <laughs> simply because that's the terminology that the army are going to use to identify uh, an individual regiment in WO338. If you're interested in somebody in the Royal Army Medical Corps, the Royal Artillery, the Army Service Corps, fortunately, those such corps lend themselves easily to abbreviations and, and conse consequently <coughs> those are used. Now, the important element of a WO338 index, index entry is what's called the long number. It's usually the, the, the last but one piece of information in a, in a man's single entry. It will usually, of course, be numerical. It sometimes takes the form of a two-part reference. The first part is the let first letter of the surname. The second part is, the, is a number. But the, the, the alphabetical part will also have the first vowel of a surname. So, for example, an, in, an officer with a vowel reference, his reference will start SI, first letter of the surname, first vowel, and then a number. The third type of reference you're likely to find in the WO338 <coughs> index are what are called P files, the personal file system. Now, those files, that system, started on the 1st of April 1922, and the records are still in the hands of the Ministry of Defence. So, if you find an officer with a P file reference, you're stuck. The final part, selected military personnel files in WO138, you can keyword search that series and will find the records of service of such individuals as Wilfred Owen and Field Marshal Sir Douglas Haig. You do get the odd file relating to officers in <coughs> PIN, Ministry of Pensions, PIN 26, which are selected pension files and I'll come on to those a little bit uh, more in due course. That's an example of one type of form you may find in an officer's file, either WO374 or WO338. 
In this case, it, it's telling you that an individual sergeant in the 7th Battalion Royal West Surrey Regiment is being commissioned. And that form, because he was actually commissioned in the field, that form was generated out in France. Another form, especially for pre-war regulars, is a f what's called a form of particulars. So basic biographical information relating to an officer prior to his actual commission, and in many cases prior to his attendance at either Sandhurst for the infantry or the cavalry, or at Woolwich for the Royal Engineers or the Royal Artillery. Other ranks records of service. I will be doing a demonstration relating to the other ranks records of service um, at the end of this particular part of my talk, simply because the arrangement and access to the material is such that it can only be done effectively online. So we have a number of different record series. WO363, known as the First World War Burnt Documents, also known as the Service Records. WO364, which are actually described as soldiers' documents from pension claims. And I'll come on to descriptions of records later. WO400, the Household Cavalry Records of Service. And once again, PIN 26. Now, each of the series, four series, are arranged in different ways. But WO363 and WO364, are being, the records are being digitised. So prior to the embarkation of this particular project, the only way you could find an individual in 363 or 364 was to pick a reel of microfilm which encompassed the surname. Now, to give you an idea, and I will tie this in with a demonstration, if you're interested in an individual whose surname was Hall, you have got to look in six different piece number ranges within WO363 to find that individual. What the digitisation is doing for the first time is to itemise each individual. Now, there are pitfalls relating to using the digitised material, and I'll talk about that during my demonstration. The records of service in WO400, unlike the material in 363 and 364, which are only available on microfilm or via digital format, WO400 is available in its original state, i.e. paper records. The records in WO400 were originally held by the Household Cavalry, and they were deposited with us within the last four years. There's a specific battalion of the Household Cavalry, known as the Household Battalion, which was created in 1916, which really fall into the First World War. But if you're interested in an ordinary soldier in the Household Cavalry, WO400 is only good for certain things. If an individual died of disease, was killed in action, died of wounds, or was medically discharged, you may find their record in WO400. If they just joined, endured, survived and were discharged, the chances are you won't find their records in WO400. I'm not stopping you from, I don't want to stop you from looking if you've got an in somebody who's in the lifeguards, the household battalion, the Royal Horse Guards, in the First World War, please look. Finally, the material in PIN 26. PIN 26 consists of 22,000 paper files created and kept by the Ministry of Pensions primarily relating to individuals who had been discharged on account of 
sickness or wounds contracted or received during the First World War. As one might imagine with the whole of the First World War, there are always going to be exceptions. But the majority of the men were, had gunshot wounds, foul disease of the heart, neurasthenia, otherwise known as shell shock, general old age being worn out, examples being John Williams, VC. John Williams got the Victoria Cross, or earns the Victoria Cross, at the defence of Rourke's Drift in January 1879, and he rejoined the army during the First World War and was medically discharged and died in the early 30s. And the whole of his record from 1877 to the 1930s is in pin 26. It's a very interesting file. He liked a drink. An example of the sort of thing that you might find in a pin 26, you've got name, rank, number of the individual at the top, when he was discharged, and this is basically a minute sheet just asking for bits of information. Basically, verification of GSW, gunshot wound to right arm, verification of man's rank on discharge, and original attestation, please. In, in some cases, that information is just one snapshot of a man's service, which can lead to so many other things. Nurses and, and Women's Army Auxiliary Corps. The nurses' records of service can be found in the series WO399. They are arranged in two alphabetical collections. The Queen Alexandra's Imperial Military Nursing Service, known as the QAs, and the Queen Alexandra's Imperial Military Nursing Service Reserves, uh, and then the Territorial Force Nursing Service. The easiest thing to do when approaching, looking for a nurse in W399 is to keyword search on the catalogue by the name of the nurse. The great thing about the material in W399, well, the description says 1940, 1914 to 1920 or 22, I can't remember which, but it does contain the records of service of a lot of nurses who saw service in the Boer War, 1899 to 1902. So don't be deceived by the description concentrate on the name. The content of the files varies, but I suppose one of the interesting things about the material in W399 is that you get peer assessment. Because you, you can imagine, I'm sure anybody's seen the news this morning about the National Health Service wanting to bring in matrons, and they interviewed an 86-year-old matron who they'd got in her uniform or dressed her up and was going around. You get matrons of parts of the military medical organisation saying, well, sister this or nurse that is good at this and bad at that and spends too much time talking to wounded officers. So it's not just the, the, the high level, you know, joined, served this, this and this and left. You actually start getting down to the personal level. So they actually make a very interesting collection of records to read. W398, Women's Army Auxiliary Corps, papers. The material in 398 was like a lot of the other ranks material, subject to enemy action and therefore destruction in September 1940. The surviving material has been digitised and placed onto documents online where you can search by name. It doesn't represent the whole of the corps. There's only some seven and a half thousand, I think, individuals in 398, which is a very small percentage of the, the, the women as a whole. Women's records of service are very, very important, not just because they represent the transition of women from the home into uniform, but you look at the whole of the role of women in society. So 
So there are lots and lots of things there for people to look at. And you do get women in pin 26. Now, this is a, a significant form, simply because it's the sort of form that one would hope and that you would find in any record of service for an ordinary soldier, a nurse, or a member of the Women's Army Auxiliary Corps. This is called a casualty form active service. Now, everybody thinks casualty means dead, wounded, sick, prisoner of war. A casualty, in its truest sense, means somebody who has been taken off the effective strength of a unit. So what you have on this particular form is, a, in many cases, is a snapshot of a person's career. You get the rank across the top, with all the personal details, when they enlisted, <coughs> under what terms and conditions. And then you get information relating to postings overseas, <laughs> movements when overseas, promotions, punishments, honours and awards if you're lucky. And in this case, a very specific report. Killed, 11-15, 21st of August, 1917. So that's a very good example. A lot of this ordinary soldiers, Army Form B-103s, are pale blue. But if you get one of those in a record of service, it will give you what a historian needs, which is names, places, dates, which to, uh, to, to use to apply to the other records. Campaign medal records, something that uh, is still close to my heart. After all, it was medals that got me into the institution 28 years ago. We have the medal index cards, digitised and available online through two portals, and I will discuss that in due course. The medal rolls in W0329. Now, here is an example of a 1914-15 star medal roll and the sort of information that it captures. You have, although you can't see it, it's just so pale. Surname, rank, number, unit. When they went to France or, or other operational theatres, the numerical code is the important thing. One is France and one is and the date, and then additional information and remarks. So this, for example, Private Abair, Headley John Abair, went to France, 1915, discharged to commission into the Queen's Regiment, the Queen's Royal West Sorries. And then you have <coughs> IV, the issue vouchers for the campaign medal and various other notes. So they, they are not to be ignored. A lot of people say, well, only just use the medal index card. I'll show you an index card in due course. The roles can give you a, a, a lot of information as well. Operational records. As, as one might imagine, the operational records in many cases are the only things, those in the medal records are the only things relating to a large number of individuals whose records were destroyed in September 1940. Unit war diaries in the series W95, in Field Service Regulations Part 2, published in 1909, the War Office laid down that every unit was to keep a day-to-day -day account of their activities for two purposes, really. One was to see what an individual unit was doing for the creation at the end of a history, and that's basically what our material came from. They came from the official historian. The second use was for lessons learned. So if 
a particular aspect of an operation need to be analysed more, they would look at the unit war diaries because they will see what a unit did right and what a unit did wrong. And you might think that that would be only true to say, OK, an individual regiment who took part in operations in 1914 and early 15 might want to look at their diary, or the powers that be might want to look at their diary for what they were planning in 1917 or 1918. Not so. The British Army has been in and consulted the unit war diaries for the First World War to learn about mountain fighting. Because the British Army took part in operations in northern Italy and also in Salonica, which involved fighting not at altitude, altitude, but above sea level, way above sea level. And consequently, they learnt a lot by consulting the unit war diaries. Beyond the diaries, we have trench maps. Which regiment was where? Military headquarters papers, which are really at much higher level, but they sometimes mention individuals, especially out of, away from France. Military headquarters pa papers and head maps and plans. You saw the, the plan of the first day objectives for the Battle of the Somme. So here we have a, a, a typical sheet of a unit war diary in WO95. They're arranged in a particular hierarchical way, but you can identify individual units. You can't just say, well, I'm interested in the unit war diaries of the Sherwood Foresters. You need to know which battalion. So in this case, you've got the 17th across the top of the diary. You get a day-to-day -day account of the activities of the unit, and in this case, it talks about Officer Casualties, one of my ancestors, Robert Hopewell, and he lists individuals who've been wounded as well. Whether or not a given individual is going to be mentioned in the war diary varies from unit to unit. Officers frequently, se senior NCOs periodically, ordinary soldiers now and again. It varies from unit to unit. It's a very useful source to consult, simply because it will put into context what a given unit was doing on a given day. And this actually goes back to the objective map. This lot was still trying to get into Beaumont Hamel in September 1916. This is another good example of a military headquarters map. This is for the Battle of Lewes in September 1915. And although it, it's, got so, it's got so much data in it, it's actually quite difficult to, to look at, you do actually get our lines in, in blue, the German lines in red, and then all of the individual units and where they were relative to the front line for the first day of the Battle of Lewes. So it's actually quite a, a good way of looking. If you think that one of these blocks might represent 800 to 1,000 men. You can then work out how many people are going to take part. Right. Descriptions. We here at the National Archives call WO363, Soldiers Documents, the Burnt Series. They are the records which survived the fire at Arnside Street in September 1940. Our, our digitising partner... Ancestry, call them service records, 1914 to 20. But they don't use WO363. You've got to read 
the small print to get the description. The W0364 soldiers' documents from pension claims, also known as the Unburnt series, these are the records that were sent back to the War Office after an appeal out to other government departments saying, if you have any papers relating to First World War servicemen that you no longer need, please send them back. So they were sent back to the MOD and they are unburnt. Ancestry called them pension records. Now, pension records and documents from pension claims strike you, or they strike me, but then I would know anyway, of being two different things. Pension records might mean he got this amount of money and it was paid on such and such a day, or, and these may be the grounds for granting a pension. Not so. What I'm going to do now is I'm going to show you the strengths and weaknesses of looking for soldiers' records digitally. Now, this is the Ancestry portal. So it says search military records, as you can see, and the key series are here. You've got medal rolls, naval division casualties, which I'm not going to talk about, pensions and service records. What I'm going to concentrate on are the service records and the pensions. So if we just go into service records, you'll see that there are a number of parameters that you can populate <coughs> in order to find a given individual. So I'm just going to do a couple of name searches and show you what the records look like first. And then we will move on to more obtuse searches. So, Walter Bustin comes up with two. Both born in the same year, interestingly, but of different ages, but then it would reflect. You've got all of the data across here. You've got basically the surname, age, year of birth, about, place of birth, and the number of images. It says number of images, 26. So you can click on view to records. Now, you don't have to be an Ancestry subscriber to do this here within the archives. If you want to do it externally, you will. The only charges you incur with researching in the building is the printing. So here you have a burnt document. There's a good clue. There's a lot of it missing. So it gives you, along here, basic biographical data. And then down the bottom, date of enlistment. And here's the date of oath. So we know it's August 1914. Now, what Ancestry don't tell you is where in a run of papers that is. They don't tell you whether that is actually page 1 or page 23 of the 26. So there are little techniques. But the interesting thing about Walter Bustin is you can see is that he was killed 92 years ago today. So he's just one of the many. So the big problem, of course, with these records is the, the fact that a lot of them are burnt, so you do get fire damage, so you get the, the charred corners, you get the water damage, which makes the ink run, uh, and so on and so forth. But you can go on page by page. Now, when Ancestry started digitising the material, they created a computer algorithm to look for certain forms. So you will get, usually, the attestation form, like this, or a discharge form. 
But the way, if you think that the records were handled, were created, say, 1914 to 1920, handled over the intervening years up until when we made them, had them filmed and then they've now been digitised. So a sequence of paper might move around as people extract the data when the MOD used to do the material and then when they were filmed. So when the algorithm looked for particular forms, it went, oh, right, there's a form. And they go, right, this man's got 26 pages. But there's no indication on there that that is page one of the 26, or three of the 26, or whatever. So the important thing to use are these buttons at the top. Because we know that we're looking at a page, is it page one of Walter Bustin? The usual thing to do is to click back a page, and you will sometimes find that, fortunately, that was, this is the first page, because it's got a, just, it's in a fold, it was in originally in a folder. But that was the first page, so fortunately you're landing in the right zone there. Now, the great thing about Nate, the, the, the digitization, is the fact that you can search just for some things as unusual as a Christian name. So, you've got two individuals with the same name, both born in the same place and there are 22 pages in, in two separate bits. But the, this is the, the, the good thing is that you can actually start searching by unusual things. I had a, an inquiry from the Accrington Observer last week about a chap who's 108, whose name, Christian name was Netherwood. Fortunately, it didn't take very long to prove that we didn't have a record of service. But here you have another attestation form, this case for a man who joined the 11th Battalion Border Regiment, known as the Lonsdale Pat Battalion, because they were funded by the Earl of Lonsdale, who wanted to have them wear a uniform that was pale grey, but the army managed to say no, we th think khaki's better. And he, unfortunately, is another first day of the Somme casualty. So, killed in action. 1st of July 1916. That's when the 11th Battalion Border Regiment endured its, its highest number of casualties, as did so many other regiments. Now, itemisation of soldiers, WO363 and 364. You can search by surname. You can search by forename or initials, year of birth. You can search by place of birth. You can search by address. So if you know that an individual served at a particular address, you can just put the, the address into the residence box. I wouldn't suggest putting in 22 Smith Street, but Smith Street and the place name may produce results. Now, everybody thinks First World War, British Army, all came from England, Scotland, Ireland, Wales. I'm not talking, you know, I'll leave the dominions, Australia, New Zealand, Canada, South Africa aside. But you can actually search. It's one of the search parameters says county and I've suggested that they ancestry change that to county stroke country because you can actually search by place country of birth and if for example I found people who were born in Japan in Palestine in Argentina in pardon me in Brazil or you can look at the whole world and say well look 25 people came from that country to join the British Army Russia is a, another good example. A lot of Russians, in many cases, what actually became Poles, Poland, came from Poland, 
went across to America and then joined the British Army in America and then came all the way back. There were lo Russians locally employed in, and enlisted for operations in North Russia in late 1917 to mid-1919. Although ancestry, you would think, is for family historians, what they're actually doing by itemising individuals is actually throwing the study of the manpower of the British Army open for academic research. So now, let's come within house to look at, for example, documents online and the First World War medal records. You can see that you have surname, last name, place name, for example, and other key words. So you can actually search the First World War medal index cards by lots of different subjects. So you have a gentleman called Mark Taffy, but you also have a medal index card for Taffy the Fourth, <laughs> who was the regimental goat. <laughs> now, when I download it, you'll see that, I don't say he came to a sticky end, <laughs> but he did die. There we have the medal index card of Taffy the Fourth who got a 1914 star, but he died in January, 1920, January 1915. By default, he should really have got the British War Medal and Victory Medal. I haven't done any further research. I don't think the National Archives will be doing a, a book called My Ancestor Was a Goat. <laughs> but Taffy IV is not the only animal to get a campaign medal. The regimental mascot of the, the 95th foot, which was the Derby Regiment during the Indian Mutiny, called the first one, Derby One, Ram, he got an Indian Mutiny medal. And there was a dog called Bobby, who belonged to the 66th foot, the Royal Berkshire Regiment, and he was present at the Battle of Maiwand in July 1880. He got a campaign medal. So what you can do with searching the medal records, uh, as I said, you can populate things. Now, for example, to give you an idea, let's see how many Smiths there really are. I, I, uh, people are paranoid, he's going to jump up and down on Smiths, Browns, Joneses. There are 74,648 medal index cards with the name Smith. So this is why it's very important to actually have something that will set your person apart from anybody else. You might be interested in doing searches by military occupations. So here we have the medal index card of a gentleman who served with the Egypt Labour Corps. Now I don't know anybody knows anything about keeping camels or anything about the Egyptian Labour Corps in the First World War. But I really would like to know what a camel clipper did. He's the only one on the whole of the database for medal records. The interesting thing about the card is that it's a post-First post World War created card rather than something that was created right at the end of the war. These medals weren't issued until 1938. I'll leave you to speculate what a, a camel clipper did. Thank you very much. <laughs>